Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Church. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at the church that Paul establishes at Corinth. And as a result of that, we're also going to be looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which is known as First Corinthians. I'm always interested in company slogans or other slogans that marketing firms come up with for products, and of course businesses have these, even towns all have slogans. Home Depot, let's build something together, that's what they say. Ace has a little jingle, Ace is the place for the helpful hardware store. Apple, Apple computer or your iPhone and other devices, Apple's slogan is just think different. Most of us probably know Ford, the vehicle company, particularly their trucks, built Ford Tough. And last week we found ourselves in Acts 17 as Paul stood before the Athenian people there in Athens. And if you're familiar with what we discussed, or if you remember, Athens was this great philosophical center. Its influence was legendary and its sway and power had impacted the known world at the time and continues to impact us today in very significant ways. And Paul is making his way through these great metropolitan areas. He's speaking with people of influence. He's sharing Christ in the Jewish synagogues. He's engaging with people on practical levels in marketplaces, and he's presenting the gospel at all levels of society. And it's so fascinating to imagine this and to put ourselves in the shoes of Paul as he entered these grand cities, bringing truth to them, bringing purpose meaning, hope, and teaching about the salvation that only Christ can provide. And thinking of slogans, one of the great Greek philosophers that emerged from Greece centuries earlier before Paul arrived there was a man named Protagoras. And he said this, Man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. That idea, that philosophy, was predominant in Greek culture. Man is it. Mankind is the pinnacle, the tip, the top, and what man decides is the way it ought to be. And it's interesting, but it's also the brilliance of Paul as he entered Athens and these other Greek-influenced and Roman-controlled areas that his message was distinctly different. Man is not great, but God is great, was his message. The Greeks, and today with our look at Corinth, these people had so many gods, so many goddesses, that they didn't know who or what to worship as the great one. And so often they worshiped themselves. And remember what Paul said when he was in that great city of Athens. He says, I perceive in all things you are very religious. I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown god, Agnostotheo, him I proclaim to you. And he proceeded to tell the Athenians how great God is, that God is the creator of all, that God is the sustainer of all, that he's the ruler of all, and that one day he will be the judge of all. That sums up Paul's message to Athens. Jesus was the measure of all things. Jesus, not mankind, was and is the measure of all things, the source of truth. And now Paul finds himself in Corinth. And let's begin by reading from the scripture. Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. 
And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here we find Paul again in the synagogues here in Corinth, persuading Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, we're going through a section of Acts in which Luke, the author of Acts, shifts the story from more of a lengthy narrative style to more quick bursts of stories as Paul and his companions continue their missionary journeys. And we find ourselves now in Paul's second missionary journey as he is here in Corinth. And Paul stays in Corinth for a while and he establishes a church and later... He writes multiple letters to the Corinthian church. And so today I'm going to merge the story from Acts with an overview of the first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. But first I want to give you some background on Corinth because I think it'll be helpful as we dive into this to understand who they were as a people. So Corinth was huge. In fact, it was significantly larger than Athens, the city that Paul was just in, eclipsing the population of Athens by about 20 times. Corinth was 20 times larger than Athens. And although Athens was this intellectual center of the world, Corinth had become a very strong economic center because of its geographic location. And Corinth had a reputation for a number of things, and some of these were good, some of these not so good. First, they had a reputation for their bronze works. Back in Jerusalem, there were two doors in the temple at Jerusalem that formed a gate 75 feet tall, and this was known as the Beautiful Gate. Now, this may ring a bell and activate some knowledge way back in the recesses of your brain. You might recall that early on in the book of Acts, there was a man who was laid at this gate called Beautiful every day, and he was lame. And early on, this is in Acts 3, Peter and John go by, and this lame beggar is there, presumably wanting to receive some financial support from Peter and John. But Peter looks at this man, and he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter takes him by the hand and raises him up, and immediately his feet and ankles are made strong. And so this man goes leaping, and he stood and began to walk, and he enters the temple with them. Now, there was a reason it was called the Beautiful Gate. It was meticulously crafted, and it was a central piece of the Jerusalem temple. And when the sun shone on this gate, because of its material, it would reflect a dazzling light that would almost blind those looking directly at it. It was very beautiful, so they called it the Beautiful Gate. Nothing too fancy or complex there. But it was made out of Corinthian bronze, again, 75 feet tall, and it was also known as the Nicanor Gate. And so it came from Corinth. So Corinth was renowned for its bronze works. It was rich. 
in natural resources. Corinth was also known for its architecture. To this day, people talk about Corinthian architecture, Corinthian columns, Corinthian pillars, a certain style style of architecture with the name Corinth. So even to this day, from that perspective, Corinth has a reputation. And third, Corinth was known for its sports. There was a set of games every year called the Isthmian Games, and that was second at time in that time in popularity only to the Olympian Games that were held earlier. I shouldn't say at that time, but a few centuries beforehand. And those Olympian Games took place just outside of Athens. It was called the Isthmian Games because Isthmus, you may recall that, one of those old words that you may or may not remember from school. Uh, Isthmus is a narrow strip of land that connects two larger pieces of land with an ocean of bo- on both sides. And so if we were looking at a map of Corinth, Corinth was located around something called the Peloponnese Peninsula. And so because of this unique geography and the location of these sporting events that took place right there at that Isthmus, they called these, again, as I said, the Isthmian Games. And for a time, once again, they were second only to the Olympic Games that were held. But above all these things of notoriety, the precious metals, the architecture, the sports, above all these things, Corinth was known for its immorality. It was known for its debauched, nasty, vulgar, extreme lack of morals. In fact, this lack of moral compass was legendary the world over. When you wanted to tell somebody that he was a debauched individual, you would call him a Corinthian. It was an insult. Now, of course, a Corinthian on a technical level meant a person from Corinth. But if you said, you know what, that person, he acts such like a Corinthian, you were saying that he was really loose in his morals. Or if you were to say that a woman acts like a Corinthian, you were implying that she was a harlot. And the Greek word to Corinthianize means to be morally debased, really a morally bankrupt person. It was used as a verb in some instances. And in Greek plays, the Greeks had all sorts of plays that they would perform at these theaters. They had comedies and they had tragedies. And they all dressed up. They had all sorts of these productions. And when somebody played a Corinthian, when there was a person from Corinth in these plays, they always acted drunk. It was just the calling card of the people of Corinth. It was so bad that the city's slogan, not developed by the city, but it was developed by writers after that, says that not every fellow can afford a trip to Corinth. And, of course, that was a direct reference to some very specific activities that took place in the city that was very uncouth, immoral, and inappropriate. And what made it worse is this was all done at times under this guise of religion at these temples to these gods and goddesses. So Corinth had a very bad reputation. But Paul spends about 18 months in Corinth. He preaches, he shares the gospel, he supports himself while he's there, and again he establishes the church. And sometime after he leaves, he receives word that things are not going well. Some problems have arisen. Now, I have front-loaded you with a lot of information about Corinth, and so now we're going to shift and we're going to look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, because in this we see Paul's love for the Corinthian church that began in Acts 18, but we also see how he addressed the problems that had arisen in Corinth, and it's often been said that it was a miracle that a church even existed in Corinth, and Paul, through his first letter, 
structures his teaching and his instruction to the Corinthians brilliantly. There were five major issues that were facing the Corinthian church. There were divisions between believers in the church. There were issues about sexual purity and integrity. There were questions about food. There were questions about issues of when they gathered together as a church and how they ought to structure their worship services. And then there were questions about the resurrection. How important, how crucial is the resurrection of Jesus to the gospel of Christ? And even though I'm going to take us away from the book of Acts for a moment, this is still so important in the understanding of the early church, specifically God's model for the New Testament church as a whole. And just quickly here, Paul didn't come for a week, pop off a few messages, and then leave. He stayed for an extended period of time. He established leadership, and he discipled those who were there. He prepped them to then be able to take the church and to continue its growth. It was a struggle. It was a lot of work. It wasn't always one step forward every single day. Oftentimes there were many steps backward, but Paul committed to doing it. And even after physically leaving, Paul still provided biblical counsel, guidance, and support. So we're going to pull some of these timeless takeaways, as I like to call them, from Paul's ministry to the Corinthians by doing a quick overview of his first letter to them which is, of course, conveniently titled First or One Corinthians, and see what his guidance was. And perhaps, Lord willing, at some point in the future, we'll visit First Corinthians again to glean a more in-depth study. But I do believe that today will still be useful. So in this letter, there are some core ideas that unite the whole letter. He highlights here, Paul does, the problems, but then he responds to the problems with the gospel of Christ. And the whole letter ends up being devoted to how all of us can learn to think about every aspect of our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the lens of a biblical worldview. And I would encourage you here that while this is not required, I might suggest that you take your Bibles and find 1 Corinthians and simply as we go through this, just thumb through the pages with me. Because I think this will be especially helpful if there are subheadings in your Bible or Bible app to kind of keep track of where we are and to get the larger picture here of what we're studying. And I'm going to pull a few core texts from the letter as we work through it. And the first issue that we're going to come to in 1 Corinthians is this, that the church is a community of believers that is to be centered around Jesus Christ. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians on down in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? So here there was Paul, there was Apollos, there was Christ, there was Peter. Now, some say they were following Paul, perhaps because he was the apostle who had founded the church. Others were saying they followed Apollos, perhaps because of his strength and spiritual gifts or his impressive stature. Then there were some who claimed to follow Cephas. Now, Cephas is Peter, Simon Peter, and Peter was viewed by many to be the premier leader of the early church who was originally with Jesus. He was with Jesus' inner circle at that, and so he, they thought, must be the one to follow. And then there were some others who claimed to follow Christ. They were the Jesus party, saying perhaps that you're so carnal following after mere man, but we're following in the footsteps of no one less than Jesus himself. You know, we're the ones that are really right with God. 
God. But the sad reality was this. They weren't really following anyone. Rather, this was used as a method and as a tool, as a smokescreen, if you will, to find a way to boast about themselves. They had become, this had become a point of deep contention, and Paul says to put it away. He tells them Christ is not divided, but rather the gospel is found in the redeeming work of Jesus. And so as he works through this first chapter, listen to what he says as he draws contrast between human abilities and human leadership and what God provides. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the ones who boast, boast in the Lord. In other words, Paul says to them, don't define the church based on personalities and preferences between leaders, and don't boast in your own abilities, but rather boast in the Lord and the glory of God because the center of the church is Jesus. Secondly, he addresses some issues of sexual impurity here. Now, some had turned a blind eye to sexual sin. This was so rampant in Corinth, and they used their freedom in Christ to justify it. And not only this, but there were people in the Corinthian church who were saying that these relationships were all just fine and appropriate because grace gave them permission to do it. If God was going to forgive them anyway and there was really no law to follow because of God's grace, then why do we need to even worry about it? They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, so it's fine. Everything's fine. But Paul comes in and he says, well, no, in fact, it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows them just how mistaken and wrongheaded this kind of thinking is. So he says, remember that first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin and the perverseness of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And if you're a Christian, he tells them, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus' love and grace. And Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do to your body matters. It matters a lot. It's not just yours to do with whatever you want. And Paul reminds them, of this to say that Jesus died for all sins, including the ruin that sexual infidelity brings. And I want to say this on a personal note, that having now worked primarily with youth for nearly 20 years and seen really many groups of young people come from those very young, innocent ages and growing up and becoming adults, then I'm going to share a statement with you that I normally only share in small groups of people. And if I asked you all or if I asked a group of people familiar with this area in which we live what the number one problem is that we're facing, almost universally, you'll hear drug abuse. Maybe poverty, but primarily drug abuse. And I will tell you, if you go to most rural areas like ours and you ask a similar question, that's almost always what you'll get. Drugs. Drugs are the problem. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't believe that. Now, drugs are a problem. They're a huge life-destroying problem, but it's symptomatic. It's on down the track a little bit from the root cause because the foremost problem is a spiritual one. People do not have a meaningful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, they don't know who they are in Christ, and so they look for contentment and satisfaction elsewhere. 
And usually this starts with human relationships, girlfriends, boyfriends, multiple relationships. And this often leads to having a child. And again, there is no foundational relationship with Christ. And so they go from relationship to relationship trying to fill that void, that chasm that's in their heart and soul that only God can fill. And now children oftentimes are left to be raised by a single parent or by grandparents or other family members or friends that try to step in to correct and to right that wrong. And so this infidelity and sin was rampant in Corinth. But Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, he says, flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now just imagine for a moment, just imagine if people believed that truth and acted on that truth. Overnight, overnight this town would change dramatically. Join with the Lord, Paul says. Flee, run from sexual immorality. Run from it like a grave and wicked devouring enemy. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Thirdly, there were issues about food. Now, this may seem kind of strange. So, on occasion, when members from the Corinthian church were out and about and sharing a meal with one another, a new issue would arise among the believers. Meat that came from animals sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods. So, this meat, after it had been sacrificed and prepared, the meat would then be placed before people to eat it. And the question was like this. Is it okay for Christians to eat this food since it was sacrificed to idols? Well, Paul tells them that our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Christ. And then he gives them some common sense advice on how to respond to these situations. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offers to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. However, verse 7, this is in 1 Corinthians 8, however, not all possess this knowledge. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here's what he's saying. We should love people more than we love ourselves. To the Corinthians, they should love people more than they love themselves. What Paul is saying is this. If the Corinthians were with a mature group of seasoned Christians who knew that this food was just food because the idols weren't real and they were false gods that didn't exist anyway, then go ahead and eat if it wasn't going to bother anybody's conscience. But... If they were new, less mature Christians, and this was going to be an issue, if this was going to be a stumbling block and it was going to cause them to stumble or somehow sever a relationship, then don't eat it. Because the core principle of the gospel is love here. Love for God and love for others. So he just gives them some practical advice on how to mitigate this situation and make some decisions based on the maturity and the knowledge of the particular believers that were around. And then there were more questions about gathering together. So this happens on down in the book of Corinthians here in the first letter about issues about getting together and gathering together for worship service. So during these worship services or church services, confusion started to happen because the congregants were not unified in what they were doing. So some people who were getting together erroneously believed that the reason together was to get together was to have these intense spiritual experiences. The more emotion, the better. The more intense the feelings, the better. But that was not the case. 
But in these services, one person would start speaking, and sometimes they would speak in a language that no one else knew. And then another person started speaking and believed that they were being given some other type of deep spiritual knowledge. And so then they would start speaking and start trying to kind of take over the service. But then another person might start doing the same thing. And this competition between several of the church members arose and nobody knew what was being said. It was really just a bunch of barbaric babbling that started taking place. And they were essentially competing over who was the most spiritual person, who could have the most intense experiences. And one of the things that they presented themselves were super pious. They thought that they were a better believer because they did these things. And then, you know, you get bonus points if you cry, that sort of thing. But for everyone else in the conversation, it was confusing. It was chaos. It was a mess. They didn't know what was going on because no one was unified in what they were doing. But then Paul presents this brilliant illustration. He says, the church is not a bunch of disconnected pieces But we are one body with different but complementary functions. He says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And even though we're not going to go through this today, he goes on to give some specifics, talking about hands and feet and other parts of the body and how each person in the church plays such a vital and significant and important role in the overall function of God's church. And then finally, there were questions about the resurrection of Jesus, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. And in this chapter, we learn that some were dismissing the resurrection. They were saying that there was no such thing. Now, coincidentally, we see this today in the presentation of the gospel, and we've seen it throughout history. Most people will give you that Jesus existed. Most people will give you that Christ was a good moral teacher and that he was a religious guru. Most people will even give you that he died on the cross, and that was meant to be a good and selfless thing. But when you get to the resurrection, they just don't want to believe that. They didn't want to believe it when it happened. They didn't want to believe it as Paul presented this on his missionary journeys. Many didn't. And here it had become a point of contention for the Corinthian church as well. Now, why is this? Well, I believe because acknowledging that, acknowledging that Christ indeed was risen from the dead, that brings us face to face with the reality of who Jesus is, and then we must make a decision to either follow him or reject him. But Paul presents the resurrection as an indispensable part of the Christian gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You know, we've all heard it said that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And when devout Christians today think of Corinth or Corinthians, They think of the two letters that we have looked at today, or at least the first one. 
They think of the great chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Others find immeasurable joy, promise, and comfort in the victorious resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. But that's not what the name Corinth or a Corinthian meant in Paul's time. And yet by God's grace, things changed. Paul masterfully answered each of these questions and issues that the Corinthians had. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he gives us the ultimate reason why we should live the way Christ desires us to live. And that reason is love. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on, Love is patient, kind, does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But he goes on to say this, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. The city of Corinth that was once synonymous with moral debauchery, rampant sin, and harsh hedonistic people is now known as the place that contained the church that received the letter with the greatest chapter ever penned on love by Paul. If we are obedient and if we are faithful and if we have love for God and one another, God will continue to use us as his instruments to bring the gospel to this town and to lead folks to Christ one person at a time. Thank you for giving me a hearing today. Please pray with me if you would. Our Heavenly Father, when we look at much of our condition today, it's not that different from Corinth. And some of the same problems that the Corinthian church face, we continue to face today in your church as a whole throughout the world, God. But Lord, you give us a guide and you give us answers in your word, God. Lord, help us to heed to that, to listen to it, and to follow you to be unified under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that each one of us have not been given the same role and the same gift, but we all play a unique and important role in the body of Christ to share the gospel with this world. God, thank you for allowing us to join you in this work and inviting us to join you in the redemption of mankind. God, I pray for all those who are listening. I pray for the salvation of those who have not yet taken that time to commit and surrender their lives to you. And I pray for those who have, that you would strengthen us and help us to be discipled, to be great proclaimers of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.